Hello. Good evening. Welcome. You're on. Barry, where are you on? Where, where am I on? We're on Across the Pond, Chad. Of course. <laughs> the greatest podcast in the world. Of course. Pond, across the pond with Barry and Chad. So we're on 35, episode 35 of our wonderful podcast. And at this milestone, we are changing things up just a tiny little bit, Barry. Um, we're going to make it a little bit more conversational. We'll still try and keep that energy up. But we're going to try and not follow our script, follow our blueprint, follow our notes as much as we have been in the past. And uh, hopefully everyone can kind of just sit in on our little conversations like they're a fly on the wall, like they are an extension of the chair next to us. Um, just be part of this. Definitely. I think that what you're watching and what you're listening to hopefully is this evolution of this thing as we learn what the hell we're doing, right? So for a long time we were trying to figure out the tech, trying to make sure the quality was good. Then we had the segments in place. We've got those awesome jingles. And now we're trying to figure out how do we make it more conversational, like you say, and uh, trying to stick away from the boxes we sometimes push ourselves into because we feel like we have to get through all these topics we've got on this on this sheet, right? And there's so much going on that it's it's silly to think we can get to everything, Chad. It's silly to think that we can be able to touch every single topic. And so hopefully we can, so today we're going to try this new little this new format and try and do fewer topics but in more depth and more conversationally. So I'm quite excited to see what happens. Yeah, me too. Me too, definitely. I think when you listen to a load of other podcasts, it certainly comes through. And I guess from our point of view, we also need to think that people are listening to this as a second kind of activity. Most of the time, people who are listening to podcasts are doing something else. Uh, either they are commuting, either they are cleaning the house, cooking, you know, doing those kinds of things. And so it can't be too intense. It's got to be a little bit more conversational, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it's worth an experiment at least, right? Worth trying a few different things. We're trying to keep things fresh for ourselves and hopefully for our listeners. Uh, we've obviously learned a hell of a lot over the last 35 weeks and, and things keep changing. So let's, tr let's try it out. Let's see what happens and uh, we'll see if it comes out as, as well as we hope it will. Yeah. I mean, Barry, you were telling me about how cold it is that side uh, in South Africa at the moment. Um, I was just chatting to my mom earlier and she just mentioned that there was a bird bath that had a block of ice on the top of it this morning, um, which certainly for me is is a bit of a strange thing to see that side. Are you coping? How's it going? I'm struggling, Chad. I really am not a person for cold <laughs> weather. I, I'm all bundled up. I've got a big jacket on normally throughout the day and trying to survive. Uh, I know all my overseas friends will laugh at me because South African winters are very mild and there's sun every single day and whatnot. But for us South African oaks who, who really are used to the sun, used to the heat, I really do struggle. So I cannot wait for spring to come, Chad. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, another thing that we were just chatting about just before hitting record is uh, I went and got a haircut, uh, which was which was strange. Barry, uh, to have to wear a mask in the salon. Um, I know you got your hair cut last week. We didn't really speak too much about the practicalities of it, but it certainly is a new world. It certainly is really strange. Like the hairdresser had to spray down every single thing <laughs> she used. I had to sit in between screens when I was getting my hair washed and, you know, make, make sure that the mask was on the whole time as well. Um, definitely a strange uh, transition to the new, the new normal. Yeah, it felt like you were going to some sort of chemical warehouse because they had pushed all the chairs further apart <laughs> and in between each person, she would have to spend five or ten minutes cleaning everything from the comb to the clippers to the chair to everything. And she was telling me that, that the rules say she has to use a different towel for every single customer. 
So she's okay. taking all her towels home every day, like washing like 30 towels and then bringing them all back again the next day. So it certainly is a brand new world, but I I was very happy to have it done because I wasn't brave like you and, and uh, allowed a fiancé or partner to, to have a go at it. I was uh, holding on for dear life and uh, I feel like a new man with this the shorter hair at least. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, on my side, luckily they didn't have to wash all of their towels because they had disposables. So Winnie. also strange not having your normal cape kind of thing your normal <laughs> material cape it was a see-through plastic one um, which definitely feels a lot more like cheap and less premium kind of thing but as we say it's it's kind of the way we're going so anyway let's now keep to our normal structure i suppose and uh, let's chat about some things that happened this past week barry why don't we do that i like it Chad. let's do it the week that was so quite a busy week barry um but obviously you know we kind of wanted to just take a few little things and really go into the little rabbit holes we want to chat about and let's just let this conversation go wherever it's going to go um, but I mean the first little topic that I wanted to talk about was the e-scooters and uh, we've spoken about them before quite a few times in the podcast and uh, obviously for some people they're they're pretty annoying these e-scooters <laughs> that come flying past you if you're in the bicycle lane and there's this random guy who's, who's standing upright which feels weird if you've ever been in a bicycle lane when an e-scooter comes past you it feels pretty strange. They tower over you, right? <laughs> they do. They tower over you. And also the fact that they're not pedaling yeah, means that they true. can, a lot of the time, fly past you. Um, but obviously, once you get the momentum after taking off from a robot or whatever the case is, or a traffic light, as they'd like to call them in the UK, <laughs> um, you actually end up overtaking the guy anyway. Um, so it does, it does feel a little bit frustrating. But we saw some news, obviously, on the back of COVID. Uh, the fact that the UK government now have to basically look forward and look ahead on what's going to happen in terms of being able to commute without being in crowds and hordes of people like we've seen on the tubes and that kind of thing. And they've actually started the first trial of e-scooters uh, in the UK, and that was this past Saturday. So essentially from this week, as we're speaking now, uh, we might see a whole load of new companies roll out scooters, e-scooters um, that you can rent, um, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's been seems like it's been coming for a while, but no one's quite been able to figure it out. I know in the States, you've got a couple of companies who are competing, but they haven't been able to get over the, the idea of where do you charge these things and where do you leave them and how do you pick them up and the, all those sorts of things. I know there's been lots of guys in San Francisco where there were companies that would just let you leave it anywhere. So you just leave it anywhere yeah. and then use GPS to track it. And that annoyed the crap out of everyone in that city because you'd be walking down the sidewalk and you'd have to be jumping over scooters every three or four meters. Yep. So you've got to find yep. that balance between the convenience of picking it up wherever you want and renting it for a certain period of time versus the actual cleanliness of the city and how it, how it works. Um, but I think for somewhere like London, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but London's had a big traffic problem for a long time. It's, it's not a city that's yep. built for the amount of people that they have in there. And so these scooters, sure. I think, are, should be a welcome welcome addition. Um, but at the same time, it, the question is whether the city is actually set up for these sorts of things. Like, Are there enough bike lanes? Is the infrastructure set up to allow for mass migration to these scooters? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the first thing that you start to think about when you, when you think about this kind of move. And uh, one thing they have been doing and one thing that they've pledged to do in the next you know, coming years is to spend some money on increasing the infrastructure available for cyclists and obviously now e-scooters, which uh, have kind of been out of the limelight for a while, but I, I'm pretty sure um, as this all rolls out, um, you know, no pavements is a very specific policy that I've seen. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, any pedestrians on the pavement, that's really annoying as well when you've got people zipping past you. Yeah. Um, and obviously there was the case where a YouTuber, a, a lady, uh, was actually killed in, in Battersea on one of these uh, e-scooters. Obviously at that time it wasn't legal. 
they weren't actually allowed. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there's some safety concerns there too. Yeah, I think one of the things that some of the companies are trying to do is put those speed limiters on those scooters yep. to try and keep it at, yep. a, at a me- reasonable level. But if you're good enough with tech, you're good enough with mechanical engineering, it's relatively easy to get around those limiters as far as I'm aware. Uh, a friend told me, a friend told me. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where I think the regulation will be in place and you'll say, cool, the speed's going to be limited yep. to this. But if it's on a pavement chat, it doesn't matter what speed, right? If people aren't expecting it, if it's coming out of nowhere, it's coming around a blind corner, it really can cause damage and can cause death, like you say. But I think it's one of those things yep. where you've got to weigh up those benefits versus the costs, right? Like if it allows for more mobility, if it allows for better traffic congestion or better traffic flow throughout the city, if it allows some of the the pressure to be taken off the tube system, then maybe it's worth a go. And I think these tests will be quite indicative of whether it's actually going to work in somewhere like London or somewhere like the UK. I think if we look at Southeast Asia, like it's obviously taken off in a huge way there. And if you go there, there are thousands of those scooters and bikes and all sorts of things. And it's a whole different world when that is the majority of your traffic versus big cars. And I don't know if it's better or worse, but it certainly is a different world. Yeah, I mean, Southeast Asia, uh, certainly on the motorbike side, uh, (laughs) I love Thailand. I love Thailand. I've been there twice. Yeah. And uh, when I was there, obviously, you have to hire a scooter. It's part of the experience. I don't feel like you can experience Thailand without doing that. But if you're not um, really, really confident, you get to these traffic lights that are just out where where the lights are out. And uh, you end up playing this kind of chicken game. <laughs> he who wants to go will go. Yeah. And uh, he who is cautious and scared will, you know, hang back a little bit. And I'm really shocked while I was there to not have seen, like, hardly any accidents. Yeah, I, I found the same thing in India. When I was in India, the same thing. Like, they don't have many traffic lights. They don't have much, like, it's all chaos there. It's complete chaos. But it's <laughs> controlled chaos in a weird way. Yeah. Because everyone just, they kind of believe that the person next to them is not going to knock them over. So they just have confidence and they make the turn and they do what they need to do. Uh, and it's a very foreign concept if you've come from a country where the rules are very strict and everyone stops at the lights and all that good stuff. So it's a very foreign concept to be able to trust the people around you. And uh, the question is going to be, like, are how many mistakes, how many accidents are going to happen uh, to try and yeah. figure out what is the right way to do this? Like, do these guys get rights of way? How do these, does it change the way the traffic moves or not? Um, it's going to be a difficult one. We have to wait and see, Chad. Yeah, and I think that the important bit there is we are trialing this. So this is a trial. It's a yeah. 12-month trial. And I guess depending on how it goes, uh, regulation will follow. And the important thing that you touched on there, Barry, was the the limiters. And I think that's potentially the reason why they have actually stuck to this trial only being available to rental companies. So I guess any rental company who enters into this trial will have to make sure that those limiters are in place. Um, And that's obviously why they're discouraging people from buying their own. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that they're probably going to monitor those companies very, very carefully and kind of maybe even track the GPS data. I'm not sure if they're going to go to that extent, but try and make sure these guys are following the rules and then track what it does and how many people they can get on and whatnot. Chad, I I know it's like summer at the moment, where you are but what do you think about the weather what do you think about those cold uk winters are you going to be jumping on an e-scooter and flying through town or is that going to be a, a step too far oh it's a, it's a really good question i mean i you're asking the guy who has commuted to work before in winter That's what I'm asking, and uh, yeah. for me i suppose i suppose it's all right when you're on a bicycle and your body temperature is still raising because you're you know you're exercising while you're getting there um whereas here you are you know your body is still going to be cold and uh, and ultimately like you said you're going however much it is. I think it's 15 miles an hour is where the limit is is set, somewhere around there. Um, So that should be still pretty chilly. But for me, that or having hordes of people next to you (laughs) standing, like literally having 
you know, 10 centimeter gaps between you and, and people all around you. Um, I definitely think it, it's something that's quite appealing. And I suppose depending on how far you're going, uh, you know, if you're only going a couple of Ks, it might be worth the, the cold. Uh, you might even get, you know, those nice thick jackets, the coats, um, you know, might even get yourself all geared up uh, to, to be worth it. Yeah, I think anyone who's tried to get on a London tube at rush hour can get behind that statement because it is absolute yeah. chaos. <laughs> and uh, I think that especially if those short journeys, like you say, like if you can get your apartment close to work or if you are lucky enough to have a very short commute, yeah. it can really make a lot of sense because it should save you some money as well, theoretically, um, and also get you out in the fresh air. Right? Like, There's nothing wrong with some fresh air. We all spend way too much time sitting inside in front of a computer screen. And so a little yeah. bit of air never hurt anybody. But I mean, the other thing that I suppose I always, whenever I speak to any friend from South Africa who's never been to London. The other thing is London is pretty small. So you, you don't really think about it because it's really packed up, yeah. I suppose. There's not a lot of space between buildings and uh, roads and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really all packed up and it doesn't feel small. Uh, but when you actually look at the number of kilometers compared to you know back in South Africa, uh, things are really fairly close by actually. Yeah, and that's why the, the subway system works so well, right? Because it's so well connected and everything is relatively close. Like you're not going to be traveling hours and hours to get to your, get to your place. Um, and so that's why these scooters is an interesting way to do it. I think a lot of Europe have gone this direction, especially with bicycles. Like in Amsterdam and whatnot, there's bicycles kind of the main form of transport there. Yeah. And it's because Amsterdam is also so close together. So everything's within 15, 20 minutes uh, in, in, the, in the major part of the city. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting uh, kind of tactical change to how the London traffic looks. And uh, I'm curious to see, Chad, I hope you're going to try one out when they're out there. And I want a full review. I think all the listeners would love to hear your thoughts on uh, the tech behind these scooters. Like, how good are they? Or are they kind of a, yeah. a bit of a gimmick? Yeah, I definitely will do that. Um, I think I spoke about my experience in Paris using, uh, I think they're called Bird, that side. Yes. Uh, where you do rent it and you pay, you know, per kilometer or whatever the case is and that's also a really good place to to have e-scooters barcelona also amazing yeah. um i suppose with with the grid-like design that the city has um and they've also got cycle lanes and you can actually have all sorts of funny things i've even seen people on one wheels um <laughs> i don't even know if you, i don't know if you know what those are barry but of, of course i do chad every youtuber has to have one don't you know that's the rule yeah that's true that's true <laughs> um i don't know how good my balance would be at that how do you think you would do Yo, i wouldn't be good eh? my my balance is not great in general, and I wouldn't trust myself on one of those things. They look like they look like one of those J boards. You know those J boards that kind of uh, go different directions on both sides of the board. Yep. Yep. I remember yep. trying one of those at a bry once uh, in front of a girl <laughs> I was trying to impress, and uh, let's just say it yep. didn't end well, Chad. It didn't end well. <laughs> well, better that you tried than not. Um, and I think that I think that J board. I, I think I think I think I'm thinking of the same thing that you're thinking of. I saw a guy coming down the, the pavement, funny enough, the other day with like a clip onto that device where he, he was actually sitting on it and then using his arms um, to maneuver. It's kind of cheating, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but it looked like a much better way of doing it. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird device because it claims to be self-balancing. Like that's one of its like, selling points. It's anything yeah. but. It's only self-balancing <laughs> if like your center of balance is perfect. If you go a little bit wonky, that thing goes out of whack completely. Um, yeah. And I remember in, in Singapore, you can go and rent them and you can go around the marina, which is like this giant bay of water in the middle of the city. It's beautiful there. And so you can rent Maybe. them and like use that to get around the marina because otherwise it takes a, bit, a long time to walk around. And I thought it was a great idea. Because they're self-balancing. You're like, oh, you just get on it and you move. You just lean forward with your body or you lean back or whatever. It's really not that simple, Chad. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I would not have tried one uh, at a new country. I've only <laughs> ever tried one in the safe confines of a friend's house. Um, but like you, Barry, it didn't go too well. I was balancing on couches. <laughs> I was balancing on kitchen nooks, and and then the worst part is if you if you overshoot it on the one side, you almost you almost start to pirouette around the whole lounge. Oh yeah, like, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's self, it self corrects very very uh, rapidly. <laughs> And so, like yeah. you say, if your balance gets a little bit off, you're okay. The moment you switch over a certain like critical mass, all of a sudden your your body's <laughs> going one way and the J board's going the other way, and you just got to make oh, sure you're somewhere soft. <laughs> Gosh, well, yeah, that's what's happening on this side. That's the one piece that I wanted to unpick uh, out of the the UK news. Um, how about on your side, Barry? What's what's happening this past week? Like, how's things been going that side? Yeah, I think I think it's been going all right. I think one of the worries this side, Chad, is is the COVID numbers we've seen over the last couple of days. I think that right. it, it almost feels because we've been going through this COVID for so long that people are starting to almost forget about it, getting a little bit complacent. We're hearing good things from around the world about cases going down. A lot of countries are starting yep. to get back to normal. I know you mentioned the UK might be opening up some travel borders, and uh, sorry, the Europe might be opening up some travel borders and whatnot. But here in South yep. Africa, we've always been chatting about the fact that the peak is still coming, right? Even even those few months ago, we went through lockdown and I think we've been in lockdown for 100 days now here in South Africa. Sure. Um, we're still waiting for that peak, theoretically. And we started to see some murmurings over the last couple of days. So on Saturday, this, this, this past weekend, we had 10,000 new cases in a day, which was our, our highest ever. And then Sunday, 8,000 new cases. So the cases are, are still growing and there's still lots of, lots of worry there in that sense. Um, I think that it's hard to know whether this is good or bad because you don't know what the numbers would have been without the lockdown. Um, sure. But obviously, South Africa are trying to open up the economy again because we need to so badly. But the cases keep going up and up. And I think what's most worrying for me, because I live in Joburg, is that Gauteng's numbers are now starting to overtake yep. the Western Cape. For a long time, the Western Cape had over 50% of all the cases. Um, and now Gauteng have now overtaken them and have now I think they have the most active cases in the country right now. So it's a it's a cautious warning to all my South African friends that they, they can't get complacent yep. about this, right? This thing is still still very much alive. And it kind of hit home for me, Chad, because I found out that two or three of my people in my circles have now got the disease. So that makes it right. that makes it much more real when people that you know have it. Um, has it yeah. Do you know anyone who got the disease while you're in the UK, Chad? Definitely, definitely. Uh, quite a quite a few of my friends uh, have had it, and it was just before we went into lockdown that everyone seemed to have it. Okay. Um, and so it moved very quickly from being this thing that isn't happening in China. It's very far away from us <laughs> to all of a sudden, you know, loads of people have it and, and you know, family and friends have it as well. Um, the one really interesting one for me is uh, a friend of mine who, who works in the NHS and, uh, and she actually didn't get it while at work. She got it while she was on a holiday before she got back, um, which was just one of those strange cases, I guess, because inevitably, um, you know, being working in the NHS, working in a hospital, I mean, that is where the risk area is for me. Um, but it just shows you how widespread it was at that point um, that she actually got it on a holiday. Yeah, it's almost ironic, right? It's almost like you yeah. if you go on the holiday to get get away from the stress and the anxiety and you catch it there. Uh, I know on my side, the people that I know have it are all in a medical field. They're doctors or they're nurses yep. and they're working on the front lines. And unfortunately, that is where the high risk is. Like no matter how many precautions you take, if you're getting seen patients every single day, it's really hard to, to avoid it. And uh, so Definitely. the question over here that everyone is debating, Chad, is, is are our hospitals set up? Do we have enough people? Do we have enough hands? Um, so that when we do hit that peak, um, are we going to be able to, to, to handle it? And uh, I think for personally, I'm cautiously optimistic. But of course, I don't have the numbers. I don't have the data. I've kind of yeah. got this blind faith in a way. 
And hopefully we've had enough time to figure that stuff out. So we've had enough time to plan and prepare. We always knew the peak was coming later. And most people say September even. So we might even be far away from the peak today. Um, and the fact that we're in our winter period right now, you're going to have more flu-like symptoms. You're going to have more opportunities to, to catch the disease. And so I think it's for us, I get a little bit anxious when I go to shopping malls and I see people in restaurants again. And I'm like, uh, is that yeah. too early? Is that too early? Barry, one question I wanted to ask you is all of those friends that you were mentioning, all those people in your circle of friends who have had it, yeah. um, how are their symptoms? Because from my conversations, they vary widely, which is the fascinating thing for me because we're all talking, we're talking about the same disease, mm -hmm. but it's affecting every single person in such a varied way. It's fascinating for me. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those things that has really been a talking point throughout this whole conversation for the last few months. And I'm exactly the same. I've got friends who basically didn't even know they had it, who were like very, very mild, like a little bit of feeling uneasy. Um, and then I've got one friend who is really man down right now. And luckily he doesn't have to go into hospital yeah. at the moment, but his man down, his self-isolation is really struggling with aches and pains and a cough and all that yeah. good stuff. So I don't think anyone understands why certain symptoms are there and certain not. I think a lot of it comes in down to your own immune system. So if you have a strong immune system, I think that you've got a better chance of kind of avoiding some of the major symptoms. Um, obviously, if you've got pre-existing conditions, you're going to struggle a bit more. But for a lot of it, it's complete guesswork as to if you get it and you don't know about it, or you get it and the symptoms are very mild, or you could get it and really, really struggle. It's it's one of those bizarre things. That's why it makes this virus so strange, Chad. Yeah, yeah, it really is strange. Um, I mean, this past week, I had to make the really, really tough decision to postpone my wedding to uh, yes. basically next year. Um, which was going to happen in South Africa as well. And because of that peak that you're talking about, because of the timing there, because of how things are looking, um, obviously you guys have taken that really hard stance on travel. Yep. And uh, I mean, it just feels unlikely that in you know the next, let's say, three months, um, any big kind of gathering like that would have actually been able to take place. Um, you know, really tough decision to be made, but I think the right one. I think so, Chad. Like, it, it was a really, really sad moment when, I, when, you, when you messaged me and you, you told me that. But like I said to you uh, offline, I think it's important because, like you say, the trajectory is a certain way, and I don't see a way to bring that trajectory down without a vaccine, right? I think that we are a couple weeks behind or even a couple of months behind some of the other countries when it looks at our cases. And uh, so I think we're in for a bit of a rough ride in the next month or two. And so I think to get the wedding that you want, it's important to actually wait it out. And I think you and Carl, like you're not you're not desperate to get married. You don't have to get married tomorrow. You know, you, you're yep. willing to wait. And that day is so special. So you don't want to you don't want to waste it with only 50 people if that's the limit, right? You want to be able to invite anyone that you that you want there. And uh, yep. yeah, I'm looking forward to it next year, Chad. It sucks it can't be this year, um, but I think it's yeah. the right move. No, it's true. Uh, I agree with you, Barry. And yeah, it was really such a tricky one. <laughs> I want to go back to the point that you mentioned about uh, just feeling weird at seeing places open, bars, restaurants, yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, this week. Weekend was dubbed Super Saturday in London. I don't know if you heard about it. I didn't. Um, obviously, because of the fact that there was such a big deal of easing that happened this past weekend, and so they dubbed it Super Saturday. A lot of people were kind of gonna, you know, let were let out on town and and you know <laughs> really release all of the energy that's been bottling up, I guess, over the whole lockdown period. And what we actually saw was a couple of clips come out of Soho. Um, so obviously, you know, being the, 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 I suppose, busy kind of touristy bit of London, Oxford Street, all of that kind of stuff. You've got some really cool little bars and, and pubs and stuff there. Yeah. And the scenes that I saw of literally thousands of people out in the street, um, right on top of each other, um, obviously begs the next question again, um, with how effective can this kind of ease be 
when you've got pubs and alcohol and youngsters and alcohol. Yeah, alcohol is that funny thing of making you want to jump all over each other, right? It's yeah. one of those things where it's very hard to maintain social distancing if you've got some alcohol on you. Um, and and it's, it's again, it's, it's one of those experiments. We've never dealt with anything like this before. So we've got no idea how to ease things back into normal life. Um, obviously, we, we try not to do the, the one switch over, so we kind of try to phase things in. But at some stage, the floodgates are going to open, and uh, it remains to be seen what impact that's going to have. Um, I think I think you're right to, to, to be concerned about it. I certainly felt a bit of anxiety when I saw the restaurants, and that's not even alcohol yeah. yet, right? Um, and so I think, I think it's one of those things where people have been so cooped up for so long and people have been dealing with sitting in the same house and being confined to their space that the feeling of relief must be enormous to be able to, to feel like things are back to normal. Um, and you just hope, you just hope that things are, are manageable and kind of are relatively stable so that we don't have to go backwards in time. We don't have to go back in steps because yeah. the worst thing that could happen is have to go back to lockdown after having that small taste of freedom. 100%, that would be terrible. I mean, out of interest, did you go to any restaurants? I definitely, definitely did. Um, we woke up on Sunday morning and we just felt like a, a nice breakfast and the fact that places were open, our favorite, favorite place was open. Um, we had to, we had to go, um, but we did sit outside um, which I think is also really cool. So we sat outside, almost felt like I was in Cape Town. The sun was out. It was really nice, nice little wind, uh, you know, breeze going through, uh, but just, just the phenomenon of being able to sit down and, and, you know, have that restaurant kind of meal again. Um, it felt really good. Yeah, I, I haven't myself yet. I certainly have been tempted, I won't lie, because I, yeah. I would love to be able to see a friend that I haven't seen in a while and sit across the table and have a meal. It'd be great. But also I've got this weird feeling, I don't know what your waiters have to do on that side, Chad, but this side, they basically have to wear hazmat suits. They look like they are foot to toe oh, wow. with all sorts of stuff, like masks and a, a shield and all that good stuff. Oh, wow. And so it feels a little bit weird for me to sit in a restaurant and be served, me without a mask, sitting there enjoying myself, while this poor person yeah. who's serving me has to wear this crazy outfit so it's i have a weird feeling about it i i imagine i will go to a restaurant the next couple of weeks I'm, I'm sure but i'm certainly not dying to go there i don't know what that weird feeling i don't know what it is yeah i i, I get it i get it it's almost like this guilt yeah. and i was chatting to yeah. somebody else the other day who who had the same feeling um so they really just wanted to to go out and uh, celebrate a birthday that was happening um but felt really guilty actually getting onto a plane you know going to do a bit of traveling even though it's completely allowed now you mentioned we've got these air bridges that have been established with uh, i think 59 countries or something sure. um and so what these air bridges allow is that on either side you don't have to quarantine for 2 weeks um and so they're allowed they're actually encouraging some travel um, but you still have this kind of guilt feeling um, because of the fact that at the beginning of lockdown, I suppose the majority of people were complying. And, uh, you know, it was kind of that weird feeling when you saw somebody who wasn't and you, you really you really felt this feeling inside. Uh, it was kind of a bit of an anger yeah. kind of thing. And now the fact that you're acting in that sort of way, ultimately you, you feel like a little bit of a hypocrite. Um, but I, do, I don't know if that is the case. I don't know. Do you think we're being too hard on ourselves? I, I, that's the thing, Chad. No one knows. No one knows what the right thing to do is here. Obviously, you you could you could find out that things go really bad from this experiment, and you could look back in hindsight Definitely. and say, "Oh, I shouldn't have gone to that restaurant." But for the very same thing, you could uh, deprive yourself of good like meals and and friendship and whatnot for the next three months, and then find out you overreacted. Yep. And so you actually have no idea what's like what the right thing to do is. I think that for every single person you've got your own kind of risk appetite or your own way of looking yep. at the world I think that we feel that guilt more than some other people I would imagine I'm sure some other yep. people don't feel any of that because they're happy life's going back to normal 
Um, and yeah. so everyone's got to make their own decision, I think, at the end of the day. And uh, the governments are in a, a lose-lose situation because they're they trying their best to, to put these guidelines in place based on whatever data they have. But unfortunately, yeah. it comes down to the citizens and, and what happens and can they manage that virus. Um, hopefully, we're getting closer to some sort of vaccine because that, that would be the real thing for me. If that vaccine was on the way or we knew about it and it was kind of uh, in, in works and, and was ready to go, yeah. then it changes everything, right? That's a whole game changer. But until then, I still I think I'm gonna feel that guilt right until that vaccine, Chad. I don't see it going away anytime soon, and I don't see myself yeah. going out on the town for for huge meals with twenty friends anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're completely right. And uh, I mean, on that vaccine point, there's obviously been a whole load of development on the space. I think only those who are really in the medical field and you know kind of study this kind of stuff um, are up to date with everything that's happening there. But I mean, in this past week, I heard something about um, you know a load of funding being put in from the World Health Organization and I, I guess a consortium of some other people. Um, we're talking about billions of dollars um, into, you know, into researching vaccines and I guess producing vaccines. We also saw the FDA uh, release a requirement um, I, I heard of that the any potential vaccine for it to pass some sort of emergency level that they have needs to test more than 50% successful than a placebo, which seems to me to be fairly low. I, I'm not sure. I, I, as far as I understand, those, those placebo control trials are, I think 50% is quite reasonable. It obviously, it depends on what you're okay. talking about. Um, I, I agree it, sound, it sounds low because you, you actually, you're actually <laughs> like, oh, I don't know if I want something that only works 50% of the time. Um, but with something so uncertain as this and something that is, it is relatively sure. like dangerous for a lot of people, um, 50%... See, see I don't, I'm talking out of nowhere here, Chad, because like, like you, like you, I have no epidemiology. What is the word? Epidemiology. I have, I have none of that, um, and so I'm very glad that I'm not part of that decision-making process. But yep. I think it, it is the number one focus right now is to get that get that rolling. If we find something that's 50% effective, that's a starting point. We can try and figure out why it's acting that way, and perhaps like tweak it from there. Um, because at the moment, you, you have like thousands of labs all across the world, all trying different things. And we're trying to wait for one breakthrough that then all the labs can then focus on that breakthrough and try and develop a better and better, yeah. better version. So we're just trying to find that V, that version one, right? That version one of the vaccine was the starting point, And then everyone could focus their attention on that particular solution, or whether it's two or three different solutions, right? But at the moment, it's a wide open field and uh, lots of people trying different things. Hopefully, if we find that 50% um, effectiveness, that could be a, a direction or a signpost for us to look towards. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that's that's the strategy. Ultimately, we need to just get to that version one and we can expand and expand and, and get, get it better. Another little article that I came across today, Barry, uh, from Spain and uh, talking about the idea of herd immunity. And they've released a study uh, and they've actually published the results um, where they're, they're basically saying that this idea of herd immunity um, is kind of a fallacy. So they're saying that even though Spain has you know, suffered so much and, and there's been areas of the outbreak that were extensive, they've still believed that 95% of the population don't have the required antibodies um, to fight this thing off. And uh, I guess this is really drawing a close to a discussion that's been going on uh, in terms of the approach that we've all taken. Um, you know, we've got countries that are following completely different uh, protocols. Um, and for me, it's just a fascinating debate uh, to, to see an article like this come out. Yeah, I think it's one of the most misunderstood concepts out of this whole like last few months, right? I think it came out as one of these like very idealistic visions of what we could do potentially to open up the economy earlier at the time when the economy was really struggling and they were trying to open 
open things up. This was kind of touted as one, like a miracle cure. If only we could give it to as many people as possible, hopefully we could reopen stuff very quickly. Um, but like you say, it takes an awful lot of effort and it's very, very difficult to achieve that. It takes a huge proportion of the population to get it. And it's simply not practical, I don't think. So while it has a very good sounding name and a really like enticing concept, if you do any sort of reading on it, you'll realize that it just isn't possible and it's not really a good solution for us. Um, herd immunity is also one of those things where all you all it means is you're sacrificing the weakest of your population, right? Because you're saying, cool, we're going to make sure yep. everyone gets it gets the disease. There's going to be that one percent death rate, and we're happy with that. We're just going to let that go, as opposed to trying to save every single death we can. And so, Definitely. yeah, I think it's one of those ideas that has had its time, and, and I don't think it's going to work um, around the world unless you're a very very small country. But for the majority of economies. It's just not tractable and uh, it's not really the way we should go, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is uh, obviously in terms of whether those antibodies last a lifetime and a lot of people are saying maybe not, maybe not. Maybe the antibodies only last for five months kind of thing, maybe even less, who knows. Um, I guess that's why this discussion has just become a bit moot. Yeah, I think so. I think it's one of those things that it had its time in the sun, but uh, we have to look for other solutions. And I think the vaccine is the one we have to look yeah. towards. Chad, um, moving on to another topic which we always love, uh, and I think we're about three weeks away from having our very own Kanye West jingle on this show. We're very, very close. Um, but our good old friend Kanye West announced via Twitter t uh, yeah, a few days ago that he is running for president of the United States, which yeah. is uh, doesn't surprise me at all. It's 2020, after all. I mean, I'm not surprised by anything these days. Uh, 2020 has been a yeah. roller coaster. And uh, so Kanye West, he's announced his... his uh, intention to run before i remember he said that 2024 was going to be his year and uh so everyone kind of yeah. wasn't sure if it was real or a joke and then donald trump got into office and so now anything is possible and so who knows what could happen um but he's very late on this unfortunately a lot of the deadlines he's already missed when it comes to voter registration so he's been fashionably late on all of this and i don't even know if he's going to be able to run half of me think it's thinks it's a meme or some sort of joke so i don't know what you think chad is he going to run Seriously? <laughs> I don't know. I, you could never know. Like you say, Barry, it is 2020. Anything can happen at this point. Um, it's very possible. If he's missed all those deadlines, then, you know, obviously that's kind of forced his hand. Will he wait until 2024? Maybe. It's really an interesting one. I suppose this, this character that is uh, Kanye West has evolved quite a lot uh, over the last couple of years, over the last decade. Um, you know, he's a very different man, I'd say, now uh, than he was uh, before. We've spoken about that evolution before and we, like you say, maybe have our own jingle, <laughs> should have our own jingle for this. Um, but I don't know if maybe it, maybe it could be a joke. Maybe it could be a bit of a meme thing. You sent me a picture um, of Elon Musk and uh, and Kanye hanging out. Uh, maybe he put him up to this crazy idea. Yeah, Elon makes me laugh. Eh? His Twitter is absolutely hilarious. He really does <laughs> enjoy the memes. And uh, the moment that Kanye announced on Twitter, Elon tweeted right underneath him saying, you have my full support. So I could imagine nice. an Elon Musk, Kanye West uh, presidency, but that would be quite entertaining. <laughs> With Kim Kardashian as your first lady. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> well, I suppose we'll have to wait and see whether that actually happens. So let's then move on, Barry, shall we, to our next uh, segment of our podcast. Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting. So Barry's been searching for stars. Barry's been <laughs> looking up on the night sky. 
and uh, and he noticed that one was not there. Yeah, it, it's, it's all my doing. I take all the credit <laughs> for it. Um, it's a very important part of my life, my astrology. Um, or, or astronomy? <laughs> which which word is it? Astrology or astronomy? I'm not, I never know why. I think know astronomy that. is the one. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 suppose, I suppose both of them. There's a bit of an overlap there. But <laughs> um, I suppose in the context we are speaking of, astronomy is probably the one yeah, we're looking yeah, for. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I've been fascinated with stars for a long time. I know it sounds weird, but I really yeah. have. Because they, they are crazy objects, right? These, these giant balls of gas that exists all over our, our, our solar system and our galaxy and our universe. And uh, one of them has gone missing, Chad. So uh, <laughs> as, as you might know, there's a lot of people who watch these stars and make sure they're all still there. They take the roll call. They make sure everywhere, everyone is where it should be. <laughs> and they found this giant star that was, that was observed between 2001 and 2011. And uh, that was kind of the, the range at which they were, were finding this thing. And... As of 2019, all of a sudden it's not detectable, Chad, which is very bizarre. Um, obviously, it takes forever for the light to get you, and so it, when you, by the time you finally figure out it's not there anymore, it could be a year later, and that's the case now. Like working it out, they figure out okay, in 2019 it disappeared. Now, for a star to disappear is is a crazy thing because these things are ginormous, and this particular one, Chad, was expected to be 2.5 million times brighter than our sun. Wow. 2.5 million times brighter. So it's not the kind of star that you just miss, right? It's not the kind of star that, <laughs> that just kind of fades away. It's a giant, giant, very, very bright star, albeit very, very far away. And uh, it's gone poof. People can't see it. And so it's a complete <laughs> mystery here. And I was reading through some of the literature and some of the explanations, obviously people trying to figure out what happened. And there's, there's two leading theories. The first one is that they, the stars experience what they've called a dramatic drop in luminosity, which I think is a great band name oh. just for future reference. Um, <laughs> but a dramatic drop in luminosity, obviously like they think some of the brightness might have kind of burnt out. Maybe the temperatures cooled with that star very quickly. And it might, might yeah. now be partially hiding behind some dust. Now, that's a weird one because you don't normally think of dust as being able to obscure a star. But when it's so far away, Chad, a little bit of dust can get in the way. And so maybe it's still there, but it's hiding behind some dust. (laughs) It's a crazy story. It's a crazy fact that people are constantly watching every single star. And like you say, taking a roll call, knowing where it is um, and and how it can just disappear. It it really is insane. Um, I, like you, Barry, know nothing about this field, (laughs) um, but it is is fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, I mean, in terms of anyone listening, though, does it have any significance for us? Um, Does it affect us that the star is no longer there or is it just a matter of interest? I find this fascinating because that's often the the criticism labeled towards space exploration or or all this sort of of thing is that what is the point, right? How does it actually impact? our day-to-day lives and the truth is that this individual star probably doesn't i mean this star chad is 75 million light years away it is literally in a different world right it's a completely like obscure different galaxy different universe etc and so the question is does it matter and potentially you could say it doesn't but at the same time if you think about it more philosophically which is the way i think about it understanding that a star of this magnitude of this brightness can exist that far away from us just reminds us of how small we actually are in the context of yep, the cosmos, yep. right? And so philosophically, it's a reminder for us that we are we are very insignificant. In, in our world, we're obviously the lead actors, we are the stars, we all care about ourselves, and we're very, very self-absorbed. But if you look at the scale of the cosmos, the fact that we can, can look at the star so far away and actually miss it, just reminds us that there's so much more out there to explore. There's so much more to be, be in awe of and, be, and, and wonder about. 
about um, because we can see things changing in that landscape. And that to me is a beautiful idea, just to remind us that, Chad, we aren't as important as we think we are. No, it's so true. And uh, I mean, you actually quoted uh, quite a few little words from the short film that we made a couple of weeks back. And that was a key theme there. And I really loved when I got to that point of the voiceover to say how large this world is and how small we are, because it is, it, it's so true. Um, and this kind of just puts that into complete perspective. The thing is, though, are we going to keep checking up on this every year and just see if it kind of Maybe it was playing playing a prank on us. Who knows? It's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? And and, and hopefully the guys <laughs> are looking at this are going to check it up every 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 now and then. If it wasn't yeah. dust, Chad, the other theory was that it had um, transformed into a black hole. So sometimes when a star dies or when a star explodes, it can create a black hole. And I won't even pretend to to understand what a black hole is. It's completely beyond my level of physics understanding. But it's a very strange phenomenon. And uh, so if it has created a black hole, it's done so without the normal supernova explosion that is normal for these black holes. So either it's dust and, and, and it's kind of just kind of obscuring it and we'll, we'll see it in a year or two. Or it's been this really weird thing where they didn't have the normal explosion which people can normally see from, from, from these things. And it's kind of got into nothing. So it's one of those mysteries that only the astronomers are going to care about. But I found it this week, Chad, and I couldn't help but just wonder, like, where did that thing go? Where did that <laughs> thing go? Really weird. And uh, I wonder if anyone else who's listening to this, even if it even popped up on their radar, <laughs> did you know about this missing star? Maybe they should give it a name. Surely it has a name. They definitely should, Chad. I didn't see a name on the article I read, but if you want to make people care about something, you've got to name it, right? You've got to give it that name. You've got to get those wanted posters up. You've got to have all that good stuff, right? It's got to be Waldo, surely. Where oh, is Waldo? That's a good one. I, th I think we should email them and give them that suggestion, Chad. <laughs> uh, we'll take some credit for that as well. Um, I think, Barry, we've reached our next segment. Let's do it. Let's look ahead. Looking ahead. Chad, we return again to my favorite topic of artificial intelligence. And we've chatted about it in a yeah. lot of different contexts over the last 35 weeks, right? And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very biased, I, I do admit, and so I bring up a lot of it. But I find it so fascinating, this stuff, and I really do. Yeah. And one of the contexts that, that I think we've chatted about a little bit is in creativity. So a couple of weeks ago, we chatted about a thing called Jukebox, which was AI for making music, right? So if you remember correctly, yeah. we, it, it was able to take in and give you, say, a Bob Marley song in the style of Frank Sinatra, for example, and do weird and wonderful things with sound. And this week we're chatting about a model that does creative writing, which is, again, one of those weird things that we're not quite sure. Some people will say that the robots will never be able to kind of be able to emulate the poetry and the creativity and the amazing fiction yeah. that humans can write because of the way we tell stories. But if you chat to anyone in AI, they'll tell you it's just a matter of years, right? It's just a matter of time until they can write full Shakespeare plays and poems and all this good stuff. And so there's been a new development from OpenAI, a thing called GPT-3 which is the, the latest and greatest in natural language processing models. And the idea here is that it's a neural network for natural language generation. So instead of just kind of listening to someone speak and turning into text, which is what a lot of it's used for, this time it's actually mm -hmm. trying to generate original text from a prompt. So one of my favorite bloggers, a guy called Gwern, did an amazing write-up that is like a giant, giant, like thousands of thousands of lines of stuff talking through every single thing. And he's tested this model in a thousand different ways, trying to put it through his paces and see what it's capable of. And he is very skeptical. He's a very, very scientifically minded person. He's very, very conservative when he thinks about his recommendations. And that's why his quote kind of stood out to me. He said, GPT's samples are not just close to human level. They are creative, witty, 
deep, meta, and often beautiful. And now when he says this, Chad, I, I get a little bit of goosebumps because I know the kind of writing that he does and he doesn't say that lightly. And so let me try and explain how it works because it's a bit hard to, to hear over audio. Like I would encourage you to go and check it out in person if you can. Basically what you do is you type in a prompt, so some sort of prompt. So for example, you might type in, write a new version of William Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, and that's your prompt. What, the, what the, the, the network does is take that prompt, go and figure out what that means, so try and figure out the context as to what the Sonnet 18 is, who William Shakespeare is, what kind of style he writes in, etc. Crawls through the web, crawls through all the data it has. I think it's something like 75 billion parameters or something crazy. And uh, it delivers you a brand new sonnet. So like uh, like looking at the actual, like the rules of a sonnet, so 14 lines and the rhyming couplets and all that in the style of Shakespeare, in the style of Sonnet 18. And it tries to generate its own sonnet, basically. And uh, it's very weird and wonky, Chad, but, but the kind of power of this kind of model can't be underestimated. Yeah, it sounds really fascinating. I still haven't checked out that Jukebox uh, AI app that you mentioned. Um, and I guess just talking about these kinds of things for, for somebody who's not in the field, um, for somebody who, who finds it interesting but doesn't really know the intricacies. Um, that, that explanation that you mentioned, uh, they are creative, witty, deep, meta, not often beautiful, um, definitely doesn't sound like you talking about a computer, something the, the byproduct of, of a computer, something the computer put together. Um, and so it does sound fascinating. And, and where I suppose it affects is a lot of these industries that people believe are still untouched by AI or the possibility of AI. So a lot of people say that, uh, you know, accountants maybe have a bit of a struggle in the future, um, you know, by computers being able to categorize transactions, you know, do postings, do all of that kind of stuff. Uh, lawyers as well, potentially, uh, with some AI that you've spoken about before, Barry, that is able to scan through contracts and pull out the salient points, obviously more ob obvious kinds of industrial type uh, trades where uh, you can actually physically replace hands uh, with a machine that can do those kinds of things. But something like a reporter, something like a composer, something like an artist, a creative, uh, is one of these fields that we always feel has just been untouched uh, and is kind of not able to be touched by AI. But uh, this kind of shows us that maybe it can. Yeah, I think the argument that is normally thrown out by creatives in this debate is this idea that creativity is non-routine. It's like it doesn't have patterns. It's very, it's it's inspired by different influences and it's not as routine as, say, a financial statements or some sort of law thing or, yeah, or some yeah. sort of manual labor, right? Um, and I think what this technology is starting to uncover is the fact that there are patterns, but we just don't admit it. So for a lot of creative yep. work, like a structure of a song, for example, if you look at any of the songs in, yep. in the top 40 or in the pop genre, they all have exactly the same structure at the very bottom, right? 100%. And the same chords 100%. often, a lot of them have the same chords. And so there clearly is a formula for getting a song to the top 40 in, in a pop mainstream world. And that's one example of a pattern that we don't quite acknowledge sometimes, but a, a model or some sort of AI network can try and figure out what that pattern is. And, if, and as you start to expand that, like you say in reporting, if you look at a news story, there's often a pretty good structure, right? There's that headline, there's yeah. the subheadline, there's the introduction, there's, there's kind of the context and some sort of conclusion. And so if the AI can start pulling out those pieces and fill in the relevant facts, all of a sudden you've got a pseudo article that of course requires a little bit of tuning and a little bit of, of kind of sure. massaging. But at the end of the day, there are patterns in day-to-day -day life that we aren't aware of when it comes to creative work. And that's why I think this is so interesting. 
if you were to go and read the stuff, Chad, it doesn't. You're not going to be fooled yet, right? It's not there yet. So for someone who goes and reads a, what, what the the computer's version of Shakespeare, it's going to still seem a bit weird. You could be able to pick out, yeah. okay, this is not it's not a human, but it's getting mighty close and it's advancing very very quickly. And so who knows what it's going to look like in a couple of years when we start figuring out when you see a poem or you see something online and you might not know if it's a human or a robot. Barry, talking about those techniques and talking about those models and talking about those rules that we don't like to admit to, have you heard of the circle of fifths? Circle of fifths? I I feel like it was in a Jacob Collier interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's apt to be there because that is the rule that I know of um, about music, about, you know, chord progressions that they kind of match in a certain way that sound pleasing together. Um, and I think you're completely right. Um, some of these models, some of these patterns we've we've found, like the circle of fifths, um, which, yeah, I'll definitely recommend just giving a quick Google um, to kind of see these pairings of chords and, and keys and, and stuff. Um, but some we haven't. And I think that's the that's a fascinating thing is, is looking at what these algorithms are spitting out and, and actually educating us about things that have been uh, available and, and evident uh, that we don't even know. I think we've seen very similar things in the world of chess and Go even. like If we look at the way that the, yep. the world chess game got completely transformed by AI, all of a sudden AI was able to imagine moves and imagine strategies that human players had never thought of. And it made human players better. Right? It actually made humans play better. And the same in the world of Go. And so as long as you don't stick your head in the sand and try and avoid this, if you can actually use these algorithms, it can make you more creative and it can make you have a better yeah. understanding of what you're trying to do. Like you say, if you can uncover some patterns that you were subconsciously working on and if you know about them, then you can look to change them or adapt them or focus on them or whatever you want to do. And so I think that the right attitude here is not to try and kind of say, oh, the robots are taking over everything and just give up. Like that's not the whole, that's yeah. not the idea. The idea is to let this technology help you in your creativity. Let it figure out perhaps where you're stuck. Maybe give you some new ideas and create some new creative kind of concepts. Who knows? Maybe this thing writes a story that becomes a, a real viral hit and really can change the way we think about storytelling. A lot of us are a bit frustrated right now with Hollywood movies all having the same kind of structure and the same plot, a lot of them, right? Yeah. You look at all the superhero movies and all the kind of the blockbuster franchises. It's, they don't take many risks because they know what works. They know they're going to put this big star. They're going to have this rags to riches hero's journey kind of kind of story. And a lot of us are striving for something new or something unpredictable. And that's why when we see something quite unique, we we latch onto it and we kind of run with it. And maybe this technology allows us to spot some of those patterns we've been stuck in and give us that liberation. At least that's the optimistic point of view. I mean, even if we talk about uh, you know some of the great discoveries of the past, we talk about somebody that you love, Barry uh, Einstein. And, uh, and looking at some of his work, looking at uncovering some of those assumptions that a lot of uh, people, scientists, uh, had, I guess, just relied on without challenging. Um, and, and to be able to find other ones that then let them progress in the field. Um, and so I kind of wonder if AI will be able to discover some of those types of assumptions if we kind of feed in enough data to say, well, this is where we are, um, it might actually, you know, be able to let us understand ourselves a little bit better um, and, and actually evolve in certain fields as well. Definitely. And that's why I think it's going to change the world. That's why I think it's so powerful. And that's why I'm so obsessed with it is that I can see a future where it does that, Chad. I can see a future where we uncover things about physics or about the world, about design or about art or all these different subjects that we didn't know before. 
and perhaps we took for granted before. And that could, re that could result in brand new industries being created, brand new ways of thinking, brand new paradigm shifting changes of, of opinion. And uh, that's the kind of optimistic view that I hold on to, right? In the midst of all the worries about killer robots and super intelligence and all that good stuff. So it's about <laughs> re remaining cognizant of what is possible if that AI can actually help us and actually push us forward as a species. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You've given a couple of examples um, here as well. Um, the one that I found really interesting um, is an advert for um, you know Procter and Gamble CEO. Yes. Now, is this a, a little extract that the um, that the AI actually spat out just by knowing the CEO of Procter and Gamble? Sorry, I haven't given enough context, um, and you'll certainly need to just explain a little bit more. Um, but it, it's it certainly seemed quite fascinating. It's actually the opposite, Chad. This is the prompt as you're reading. So basically, what this does right. is it allows the AI to write your cover letter for you or your resume for you. Okay. So what you do is you plug into plug into the generator, you say, cool, the Office of Procter & Gamble are looking for a CEO, and you write down all the things they're looking for. So the various experience okay. they need, the kind of criteria and all this stuff. And uh, at the very bottom of the prompt, it says, please send a one-page cover letter for further consideration. And what the AI will do, will go and dig into all those adjectives, trying to understand the context, and will write a resume for you, that cover letter that you have to put on the front of your CV. And uh, having okay. read some of those cover letters, they're, they're quite fascinating because I'm sure you'll know, Chad, everyone's cover letter says the same thing. It's I'm a hard, I'm a hard worker, I'm good with teamwork, yep. I'm very humble, and, and, and we'll use the same buzzwords because we're trying to make ourselves yep. look like the, this person. And the AI knows exactly <laughs> that. It's, it's completely buttering up the person reading that letter. So that's an example. Hiring could be very different if you could apply to a hundred different jobs with a click of a finger because a computer is writing your cover letter. It almost makes cover letters obsolete. And so there's lots of interesting debates in every single vertical when it comes to art, when it comes to work, when it comes to like physics and academics and whatnot. And uh, that's why this this is so overwhelming as a technology. It's one of the things it's going to touch every single atom in this world. Insane, insane. I mean, that's huge. That's really. Uh, I guess we don't even know the implications or, or effects or repercussions of this just yet. Um, and I guess that's where we're going to be talking in a few decades' time. But at this point in time where we are right now, we're standing at the edge. We, we, we're looking out into the horizon, Barry, and, it, and it's bright. It's, it's quite a cool quite a cool looking view uh, in my mind. Um, I, I certainly am excited like you are too. Barry, are you ready to move on? Yep. Let's move on, Chad. Develop and grow. So we spoke a little while back about our favorite YouTuber. And in my mind, I'm saying that a little bit sarcastically because <laughs> we kind of have strange, different views. We, we kind of like him some of the time, sometimes not. But this particular guy, the guy that I'm talking about, is a guy who's been, uh, I suppose, just uncovering loads of productivity apps. And he actually has released a whole bunch of, um, you know, Skillshare classes, I think, uh, classes yep. on other platforms, classes just deep diving into these particular apps. Now, Barry, we've spoken about apps before. And uh, I guess this idea of, of just picking one and, and sticking with it and going with it. But you found another one. Uh, so when that, when I saw that, I wondered, is this going to be something that we're going to change? Does it have all the bells and whistles again? Or is it something that you're going to stick to? 
um, and, and kind of maximize the full value out of? Oh, Chad, you know me. I can't help myself. I just can't help myself. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an app called Roam. And I don't know if you've ever had, had a look at it yet, Chad, but I, I think it's a paradigm shifter. And I, and I say that with a little bit of caution, of course, because I've only used it for a little bit. Um, and like okay. you say, I'm, I'm very good at switching apps every single week. And it's, it's one of those <laughs> things where I, I'm trying to convince, I'm trying to figure out for myself if it's really worth switching. And uh, what, okay. I think what's interesting about it is beyond the app itself, but the way that the app tries to force you to think. And that's in a more networked way as opposed to a hierarchical way. So we're talking note-taking. We're talking about how do you take notes on, say, your meetings at work or books that you read or ideas you come across from across the pond or whatever it is. How do you take those <laughs> notes into some sort of system where you can use them going forward so you don't lose out on that knowledge? And there's a lot of good apps for this. There's Evernote, there's Bear, there's Apple Notes, there's, there's, there's a thousand of them, right? And they all do pretty much the same thing. And what the key kind of organizational structure for a lot of these is what's is, is hierarchical. You'll have a notebook, yep. and then inside the notebook, you might have sub-notebooks, and you might have tags, which are kind of another level of hierarchy. And so your note can only sit in one place at one time. So if it's a note about yep. productivity, it might sit in the productivity notebook, it might be in your note-taking section, and then it might be in your Evernote section, for example. And that's the only kind of layering of organization you can find. So if you're trying to find that note a couple years later, you're going based on keywords and trying to find it and trying to use it. And that's it, it, it works for a lot of things, but one of the things that maybe doesn't work as well for is rediscovering notes you haven't used in a long time. Because all of a sudden, okay. like, I, I know for me, 95% of my notes that I've filed away, I've never looked, looked at since I've created them. And that's a bit of a waste because you, you want to be able to draw on that yep. knowledge and build on it over time. So the app Rome tries to take a completely different uh, point of view and it tries to build almost like a wiki or some sort of online website for your notes. And the idea is that your notes are actually a database. So instead of having hierarchical kind of features where a note can only be in one place at one time, in Rome, your notes can exist in thousands of different places depending on what context. And it's all done through hyperlinks. So basically what you'll do is you'll okay. write a note and then you'll hyperlink all the key concepts, which will then automatically create a note on that concept, which then pulls all the notes from the rest of your database that might mention or, or reference that content. So you start off with a very, very like basic with one note. And as you build on it, there's all these infinite links between the thousands of notes to start to be created. And what they're trying okay. to what they're trying to emulate is the way that your brain works, right? The way your brain works is that there's a bunch of neurons that fire in different ways, and as you make connections between concepts or ideas, those neuron point, those neural pathways are strengthened. In the same way as this, what they try to do is, is get those notes to work as neurons, and so instead of being in one place, the neuron can be connected to a thousand different ideas. Why I find this so fascinating, Chad, is that this kind of networked thought ideally, theoretically, will allow you to rediscover notes that you potentially hadn't seen or allow you to build like collections of notes that are context independent. So they're not in one particular project or one particular type of thing. They can be used in a multitude of ways and a multitude of, 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 of locations. Does that make any sense at all, Jeff? Yeah, it makes sense, Barry. The fact that you mentioned hyperlinks, um, you know, that straight away, um, I can see what it's doing and, and why it's doing it. But I guess on the practical side, 
I kind of need to think about the topics that you're throwing into this notebook. And uh, and I suppose over time, as you build up this collection, how many links you can have. And, and for me, I struggle with that because I, I do like the hierarchical way of, of filing things. I found when I was studying in university and that kind of stuff, I, I really liked using, um, I guess, sub-levels, you know, indenting things. And, and that for me follows like a logical approach. But maybe I'm wrong. I know lots of people love mind maps where they can literally just start with one point and spiral out. And, and that is kind of how I see this, this kind of thing. We have, you know, the, the first link in the middle. You have all these little sub ideas and each one expands into, you know, various ideas until the time when you've got this almost 3D mind map that all just interlinks together. So have you started with it? Have you started building it up? What, what are the kind of things that you've thrown in there? Or, or what are you looking to, to populate into this kind of catalog? Yeah, so there's a lot there. I, I think I, I don't think you're wrong in, in saying that. I think it's a, it's a raging debate online at the moment is what the, what is the right way. And certain personalities fit to, to better to better roots, yep. right? I've been using it for about two weeks now and I've found it quite transformational, to be honest. I think it's it's built cool. for research. It's, re, it's really hard to explain over audio. I think you have to yep. go and watch a video or watch someone use it to get the real sense as to what, what's possible with it. But it's really built for research because... For someone like me, I do a lot of reading, I listen to a lot of podcasts, I, I read a lot of stuff. And when I collect those notes, I want them to be able to talk to notes I've taken in the past. I don't just want them just to okay. exist on their own. And what this, what this bi-directional linking does is it automates that process. So instead of me trying to remember, okay, I've read this productivity book. It's got this concept on time blocking, for example. I want to then reference that to all the other productivity notes that I might have taken relating to time. Okay. It automates those links for me. I don't have to go and figure out, okay, I remember right. this blog post I wrote in 2017. I have to go now hyperlink that to that. Because of the way it's built, gotcha. it auto auto links those reference points. And so it creates that, that map very, very quickly, like you say. And that map allows you to rediscover notes that you haven't seen in a long time. Because all of a sudden, those references are now live. And you might be able to discover a note you took in 2014 that you had for completely forgotten about. And the idea is that over time, you start to summarize those notes and summarize those notes until you've got your own personal like wiki, your own personal knowledge cool. base that can then be applied to whatever project that you're working on. So for someone like me who's doing podcast episodes and blogs and some videos and stuff, like that research is very crucial to be able to get to in a quick way. And so that's why I found it so good. Um, the jury's still out. Yeah. It, it's quite expensive, so I'm not sure if I'm going to pay for it going forward. Okay. Um, but it certainly yeah. is a it's a new way to think about note taking and and personal knowledge management. But ultimately, it also depends on well, based on the, the way you explained it, Barry. It sounds like you you need to be quite good at tagging things as well. So after you've written your your blog post or you know whatever piece of research, whatever dump of information you've thrown in there, you then need to tell it what the tags are. Or does it scan through the actual content of what you've thrown in and create tags of its own? Yeah, so it's actually very easy. So what you do is you just do double brackets around whatever words you want linked. So right. you just take, take the keywords out of that article and you just link them. And it will automatically make those references. But even beyond that, even okay. if you don't make the link, there's a section on each note which is called, I think it's un unreferenced links, I think. And those right. are where it just pulls out the keywords for you. So that tagging is actually what makes it quite easy. And and the idea is to build as many as possible into that so that you have this crazy web of ideas that can then get, can get anywhere within two or three clicks. And that's what makes this so interesting for me. Uh, like you say, it's not going to be for everybody. Um, it's a little bit weird to open up a note-taking app and there's no folders. There's no like there's no hierarchy. Yeah. And so you, you're starting with a search bar and you're kind of searching and then you're clicking around from there. 
But there's something there's something okay. magical about it. If you use it for a little bit, I think it's worth an experiment, especially if you're in research yourself. If you're studying or if you're doing some sort of research in your work, I think it's worth checking out. Um, and the best way to do it is watch a video on YouTube about it, and you'll get a, you'll get a better sense that I can't really portray of, a, of an audio as to how <laughs> this works properly and and why it could be so powerful. Yeah, for me it sounds daunting. This web, this <laughs> web that's very organized but also very unorganized because ultimately it's just data sitting somewhere that you can call upon and so for me organized chaos it that's exactly it but i mean realistically speaking had i organized it myself and and had this you know typical organized way of doing things where you have the catalog with the various subtopics etc etc that would probably be even more daunting because you've got so much content that you don't even need whenever you're searching upon something. So it sounds interesting. I think I need to go and check it out. Um, it, it definitely sounds interesting. I'm not sure whether I'm the... Use case. <laughs> uh, you know, you, typical use case for this, but uh, it definitely, definitely sounds interesting, and I, I think I should check it out. Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's certainly worth it, worth a look. And I, I pulled out another quote here that I saw that was kind of related to it. And, and one of the ideas of Rome, of course, is that these ideas have multiple contexts. And the way that you frame an idea has a very big impact on how you use it. So if you frame it as a productivity idea, you might not consider it in other areas of your life. And I, I saw this quote that kind of talks to it from Brian Eno, which says, I talk to many young painters because I teach art in schools. I ask them, why do you think that what you do ends at the edge of this canvas? Think of the frame. What frame are you working in? Not just that bit of wood around the edge, but the room that you're in, the light that you're in, the time and place that you're in. How can you redesign it? I would say that to musicians too. I see them spending a lot of time working on the internal details of what they're doing and far less time working on the ways of positioning it in the world. By positioning, I don't only mean thinking of ways to get it to a record company, but thinking of where it could go and where it fits in the cultural picture. What else does it relate to? And I think it's, it's a crucial thing because we so often think of an idea or something as part of one project and we don't consider its impacts on other points of view. I chatted to you, Chad, about the short film that you made. How could you take that and kind of send it and distribute it in weird weird ways that you didn't think of as just to put it on YouTube, yeah. right? Like what kind of value could it have in other contexts or in repackaging yeah. or changing the framing of it? And that's what Rome tries to do. It tries to take your ideas or take your notes and give you opportunities to reframe it in interesting ways. It sounds good, Barry, and that's a great little quote that you found there as well. Um, and I think it's important. A lot of the time we are in the detail and we never step back uh, to kind of take take itinerary you know take take a, a wide long look at at the context the wider context and uh, even in work sometimes we get stuck down in the the tiny little details that seem important to us but if we actually step back and, and look at the effect on other processes on other things sometimes these things aren't actually very important so i like that i like that way of uh, looking at it let us know barry what happens in a couple of weeks time what you decide especially if you're going to be uh, coughing up a little bit of money for it yeah we'll have to wait and see unfortunately the rands don't go as far as i'd like chad so we'll have to wait and see if it uh musters up yeah. the the kind of the the impact that it needs to take over my evernote yeah yeah important one that um because it needs to provide value and if you're paying for it it needs to provide uh, the right kind of value so let's see whether that actually matches up well barry we've reached the end of our episode and uh, I have no doubt we're going to be back next week again, stronger than ever. 
uh, ready to tackle on some new topics. Uh, but, you know, we've had a little bit more, uh, I'd suppose say a little bit more laid back conversational talking today. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious to hear how it sounds, Chad. Of course, we, we don't quite know how it's going to come out. But it's an experiment <laughs> we're trying and uh, we'll figure out if this is the way to go or not. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you made it this far, please let us know what you think of this kind of, this new style a little bit. Uh, potentially, we might have to look for something in between. But hopefully, we keep continuing yeah. to bring value and I'm, I'm certainly enjoying the process. So thank you, Chad. Definitely. Well, thanks for listening to us as always and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,